everyone, and welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. How's everybody doing? Are you enjoying your springtime as it starts to roll through the United States? Sorry you're not down in Florida, enjoying the Walt Disney World Resort? Well, here's to hoping you get your chance to come to the resort, or at least live vicariously through some of the other people who have podcasts out there who bring you information about the resort and parks and go around the world with their MP3 players. And I'll be doing some of that. As I head to the Disney parks throughout this year, I'll be taking my MP3 player with me, and uh, you'll get to go along with me on these trips. So I hope you enjoy that. And speaking of things that you might enjoy, I'm always looking for feedback about things that I can do differently, better, or topics you'd like to hear about at some point. And you can always feel free to contact me at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. One such topic a friend of mine was telling me about. He thought maybe I should do a Disney news segment now and again and just talk about things that are happening around the Walt Disney World Resort. And I thought, what a great idea. I think I can do that. So this week, I'm going to do a podcast strictly about some news, that is, news happenings and news items that have been going on over the last several months. First off, I'd like to talk about the Tron legacy. So Disney had the movie Tron that they produced in the early 1980s, and at the time it was groundbreaking. The technology involved in making a movie about uh, someone who gets trapped in a computer system, and they used the, uh, I think it was a Cray XMP, a very large-scale mainframe computer, to do all the graphic rep graphical re representations in the film. And the film is very graphic-intensive, and it was the first one of its kind, really, that did anything like that. So pretty exciting film. At the time, it was, it was really amazing. I mean, it was sort of, you know, in a geeky way, it was cool, but in a true storytelling way, it was kind of like, eh, you know, you basically throw away. But because it was so groundbreaking, it really was interesting. Disney is re-releasing the films later this year called Tron Legacy. And in honor of that, one of the things they did, they took the most futuristic vehicle that they have at the Walt Disney World Resort, being the monorail, of course, and made it the Tron rail and actually took one monorail and painted it uh, and put a wrap on it to put a Tron light cycle on the side of it uh, so that it looks a little different and uh, brings together the Tron legacy. Now, I'm torn on this. I love the monorail. I think the monorail is absolutely cool. But having Tron on the side of it, I don't know. I, and I like Tron. But it just doesn't, it looks funny because I'm so used to the iconic white monorail with the stripe on the side. It really does miss something for me. That was Monorail Coral that they decided to change, change to the uh, Tron wrap. So when you see it out there, you're missing Monorail Coral out of the, out of the group. Incidentally, don't know if you knew this, but uh, after the Monorail crash back in July 4th last year, they retired uh, both Monorails pink and purple because they were both damaged in the, in the crash. And uh, out of respect for the pilots and everyone involved in the, in the entire Monorail system, they just retired those two colors. So you will no longer see a Monorail pink or a Monorail purple riding the monorail beams around Disney World. But what they did do is they took the undamaged portions of both of those two monorails, so basically removing the cabs, the back cab from the one monorail uh, that was purple and then the front cab from monorail pink in the first couple of cars in either direction, and they created a new monorail from that. And they painted it teal, so now there's a monorail teal back on the line. There was a monorail teal hmm, 15 years or so ago. That one they took out of service and uh, that one's not, no longer being used, so they painted this one teal, so now they have a monorail teal on the line again. And it went into service at the end of last year, and actually uh, I rode on it back at the end of last year when I was in the parks, so that's kind of cool. I can say I actually rode on it. I didn't realize at the time what they had done. Uh, so that's, that's the 11th monorail in the system, and they expect to have another one online sometime late this year uh, to bring their fleet back up to 12. You know, that reminds me, I should do a whole podcast series about the uh, monorail system and how that works and some of the 
ins and outs of the way that they manage their trains and how they maintain them, restore them, and keep them running, and how many they have on the beams and you know all that stuff. So stay tuned for that in a future uh, podcast. In dining news, uh, two exciting additions are coming to the Epcot World Showcase with culinary expansions underway in Italy and Mexico. In Italy, an authentic Neapolitan pizzeria is under construction with opening planned for fall 2010 in time for Epcot's International Food and Wine Festival. It's going to be operated by the Patina Restaurant Group and the same restaurateurs who uh, run the pavilion's Tutu Italia Ristorante. It's going to be a 300-seat pizzeria inspired by the Naples 45, another Patina Restaurant Group pizzeria uh, in New York City. The casual pizzeria will feature the wood-burning ovens and will import water from a source that most resembles water in Naples, Italy. Now, you may say to yourself, oh, what's the big deal there? But here's a great story for you. A couple of months ago, I was watching The Food Detective on uh, the uh, Food Network, and uh, Ted Allen was doing a couple of different shows about food science and putting things to the test. And something he wanted to know, does New York pizza taste better than other pizzas? And better being a relative term, is it distinctive? So what he did, he imported water from New York City, Houston, Los Angeles, and some other city. I can't remember which one it was. It might have been Atlanta or something. And he had a pizza guy make up four different pizzas using each of the waters. He had them baked, and he had a group of chefs come in, people who know New York pizza, had them come in and blind taste test the uh, different pizzas. So he had randomly laid them out, which one was which. Uh, He even had the, the chef who had made them not knowing which was which, and he had him taste them as well. And... Every single one of them was able to detect the New York pizza. And his conclusion was that the water from New York City tastes so different that you could actually detect the difference. Everything else about the pizza was exactly the same. And I thought that was pretty remarkable. What a nice use of uh, science to really identify what it was that was different about the pizza. And he went into a little bit of the uh, makeup of the water and why, it, why it's so special, but it really did make something that tasted better or, or distinctive in some way. So uh, the the water does make a difference is what I'm getting to. So the fact that he's, they're going to import water from someplace that uh, resembles Naples, Italy, really should make a difference in the taste of the pizza. The menu will also will feature pastas, salads, sandwiches, and Italian wines, and it's about 14,000 square feet, and will include indoor and outdoor seating. And I'm really looking forward to this one. I love wood-burning ovens and the way pizza comes out of there. It has that sort of crispy texture to it, and it's a little bit burnt in some places. It's just an amazing pizza. So I'm really looking forward to trying this when it opens. At Mexico, the popular Canantina de San Angel restaurant is expanding and will feature 400 seats with an alfresco seating for lunch and a perfect place for viewing illuminations, reflections of Earth. The restaurant will feature south-of-the-border creations from the culinary team of San Angel in LLC who have run both the outside eatery and the pavilion San Angel Inn for more than 25 years. Opening is set for fall of 2010. Now the interesting thing is I've eaten at the, uh, the Cantina Inn inside and uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very good, um, gave you that flavor of Mexico. I've eaten some uh, really good Mexican food in my travels and uh, this one was this one's no exception. It's, it's a very good Mexican restaurant. However, the outside counter service restaurant that they had I thought lacked a little bit. It was more like the fast food types of re- food that you get. Not that it was really bad, it was somewhat authentic Mexican, so it was, it was just lacking a little bit. So I look forward to seeing something a little different and having a little more variety in the food that they prepare because I think that would make a tremendous difference and I, I look forward to sampling it once it gets out there. Next on my list is a tribute to Star Tours. 
There were rumors of an enhancement that was going to be made to Star Tours. Uh, they've been floating around for about the last two years. And finally, uh, Jay Rasulo, the uh, Walt Disney Parks and Resorts chairman, made a very theatrical announcement uh, back in early March. He was joined by a, a number of stormtroopers and the Dark Lord of the Sith himself, Darth Vader, to talk about the uh, changes that are coming. I'm sorry to tell you that as of October 2010, Star Tours will be closing. So fast, Chairman. Hey, hey, what's going on here? You just can't take over our meeting. The Emperor is most displeased with the plans to close Star Tours. We're closing Star Tours in order to create a spectacular new adventure at Disneyland. Our Imagineers are racing towards a reopening in 2014. Unacceptable. The Emperor will not tolerate an opening later than 2011. Perhaps I can find new ways to motivate these Imagineers. Impressive. The Force is strong with this one. 2011. Don't fail me, Chairman. We won't. So it's going to be called Star Tours 3D, and it's going to be a new 3D experience. Open by the end of 2011, in Disneyland, and then eventually to follow into Walt Disney World. So I look forward to seeing that. I think that's going to be a really cool thing that they're going to have uh, talking about you know, something different with Star Tours. Now in the sample they showed, it was uh, showing a pod racing scene, and I hope the whole focus is not pod racing. I, I like the pod racing concept, but in the, movie, in the movie schema, I thought the pod racing was kind of the weak scene. They really spent a lot of time and attention on having that pod race. But I didn't think it had a lot of relevance to the overall storyline. It was a very technically well done scene, but I don't know. It just it, it didn't really follow for me what I thought the storyline was really all about. Hey, and that's the geek in me talking about Star Wars. I'm a longtime Star Wars fanatic. I probably saw the first movie 50 times in that summer of 1977 when it first opened, and I really enjoyed it. So I'm a you know I'm a sort of a Star Wars geek, and I've gone to see all of the movies now, and I own all six of them, of course. I think the first trilogy was really really well done. Uh, the second trilogy lacked a little bit in its imagination. Uh, I think George Lucas and the, the writers and directors were focused more on the technology and less on the storyline, so it lost a little bit of its flavor, but I still think it's very good. So I hope that they can capture the imagination of what was in the original series, the original trilogy, more uh, in, this, in this newly enhanced uh, version of Star Tours. When Star Tours first opened, it was one of the first simulator rides they could have a number of people get in it. I think it's several different theaters, it's like four or five theaters that they have that each seat 100 people. And you're sitting in a moving simulator vehicle and you're being shown a movie and the simulator vehicle is moving in time with the movie so it feels like you're actually inside something. So what they had done originally was they put you inside a, uh, like a shuttle pod and you were going along and you were, you were on your way to Endor for a, a vacation and you get caught up in the battle with the Empire. So kind of a clever little concept to kind of take the first trilogy and really work with that. And when it first opened in Disneyland, I was fascinated by the concept. I didn't make it out to Disneyland to see it when it opened there, but I knew it was coming to Walt Disney World at some point. So the attraction was so technically uh, superior. I thought it was just an amazing ride the way they set it up. It was really a lot of fun to ride on, and you got that feel of being a part of Star Wars in some way. 
Now, the other thing is this whole 3D experience. Everything's become 3D. What, what is it with 3D? Everybody's excited about 3D, 3D, 3D. You keep hearing about 3D TV, 3D movies, and now this 3D star tours. It's kind of funny to keep hearing about 3D everywhere. It's, it's become the latest en vogue thing to talk about. But I do look forward to seeing it when it does, does finally open in 2011 and hopefully shortly thereafter in Florida. Now, speaking of California and Florida, Disney announced this year that they're, for the first time they're going to have an ultimate park hopper. It's going to be the premier passport and going to allow for entrance into both parks, all, well, excuse me, all six parks between Florida and California. So you can go to Disney's Cali California Adventure Disneyland, Magic Kingdom and the Walt Disney World Resort, Epcot Center, to uh, Animal Kingdom and to the uh, Disney Florida Studios. So you get, the, you get to go into all of the parks for one price. And I think that's a really cool idea. Things have changed a lot. You know, back in the day, the number of people that would go to both in a given year was kind of small. But air travel has changed in such a way that people can easily get across country and do it on kind of a regular basis. So I think it's a really neat idea that they're offering this opportunity for people to go and straddle both coasts uh, throughout the same year and be able to go into the parks as often as they like. As you listen to some of these other podcasts, you hear about these guys who are going into the parks you know, fairly regularly and either park on either coast. And so they wind up buying annual passes to both sides. And it's just kind of interesting to see how this has evolved to Disney realizing that they can offer um, something special to these, uh, to these guests. Speaking of how they offer something special to guests, I think it's really kind of neat that uh, D23 is out there. Now the name D23 refers to the fact that Disney was founded back in 1923. And the goal of D23 was to communicate with Disney fans by placing them in the middle of the magic. And I first heard about it and I was kind of skeptical. And when I looked at it, I said, okay, they offered some interesting opportunities for people to get in and take tours of the Walt Disney Archive and uh, go to the expo and do some different things. And those are all on the West Coast. And I happen to live on the East Coast. It's easy for me to get to Walt Disney World or to the Orlando area. Not so easy for me to get out to California. You know, and the other part was price. And it was like $75 when it was first introduced. And I thought to myself, I don't know, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not that much money, I agree. But it's, you know, it's money that's coming out of my pocket that I'm not sure what I'm going to get it in return. Well, the Walt Disney Company this year made a slight enhancement to the, uh, to the program and offered two new level, levels of membership. You have the gold membership that's $75 and includes the magazine and a couple of other perks. And you have the silver membership, which is only $35. Uh, so you can get a lot of the content and uh, still be able to take advantage of some of the uh, opportunities, but not get all of the features and have a lower price point that might make it more interesting for people like me who are still taking the wait and see approach. I'm much more likely to take it at $35 than I was at $75. The major components of D23 include a website, a quarterly publication called Disney 23, that's the slick magazine I was talking about, yearly member gifts, member events, member exclusive merchandise, and the D23 Expo, which is a Disney fan con convention dubbed the ultimate Disney fan experience. Which I Now I know that uh, Disney postponed the uh, 2010 version of the D23 Expo and they're, going to, they're looking to make another one in 2011. Uh, I assume and I think that that one's going to be in California as well. Interestingly, Bob Iger, CEO of, Dis of the Disney Company, made a comment uh, a couple of weeks ago where he said that uh, he thinks that they're going to start phasing out the deep discounts uh, on vacations starting in later 2010. 
And that's an indication of two things. One, that the economy is probably starting to turn around, which is a good thing. That's always a positive. And two, that they're trying to lock in people to come there because they want to see their uh, the, the occupancy and so forth go up. So I'm kind of intrigued by that comment, the fact that he would go out and say something like that. And I think it really will help in the long run to, uh, to bring people in. They want to make sure that there's going to be people there throughout the summer and into the early fall, and that's why they're going to start phasing it out. And they'll probably make one last push here in the spring to, uh, to make a couple of discounts to uh, get people to come in, say, you know, it's the last one of this year, or something like that just to get people interested. But I, I like the concept and the way they've done it. Here's something you may not know. The University of Oregon was, had licensed the character of Donald Duck to be their mascot. So if you were looking at merchandise from the University of Oregon, you often saw Donald Duck featured in the, uh, in the logo instead of the duck that you see on the sidelines. Now, this was an agreement that the Walt Disney Company came to with the University of Oregon back about 30 years ago. And the reasons for it vary. I've heard different, differing uh, strategies on what the reason was. But uh, the University of Oregon was interested in getting um, more engaged with the Disney Company at that point. So they bought the, uh, bought the rights to it for some period of time. Now Disney exercised the creative control over how Donald could be used on the merchandise. And the duck that was on the sidelines of games was not Donald. It was a more caricatured duck that you've seen in different videos. However, Disney still did exercise some control over what that duck could and couldn't do since he was representing the Donald Duck image. Uh, well, this year, the uh, deal with the University of Oregon has uh, been phased out. So you will no longer see Donald Duck in any of the University of Oregon merchandise. So I always thought that was kind of, kind of interesting. And I actually went out and I, I purchased a, uh, a sweatshirt with the Donald Duck on it because I th just thought that was kind of neat. It was so different and so unique. It's a piece of Disney memorabilia that really most people would never even think of unless you live in the uh, Pacific Northwest or you happen to know about the deal. But uh, get your merchandise now if you want it because the deal will be phased out shortly and this is your opportunity to get Donald Duck in something that's not Disney related. A little bit about downtown Disney and some of the changes that are going on there. To add something for the boy crowd, ride makers will allow guests to customize radio-controlled vehicles by uh, choosing their car's body, wheels, and rims, and sound effects. Uh, the store grew in popularity in Disneyland and opened in the Walt Disney World Resort just a few weeks ago. D Street uh, is moving over to the west side and will offer edgy clothing for both men and women. Urban-inspired designs will be featured, but with a Disney twist. In addition to clothing, guests will be able to find pop culture items, vinyl nation, artwork, and accessories. The store is expected to open in April of this year and will be given a venue for local artists to feature their Disney arts as well. A change came for the existing location of the AMC Pleasure Island Theaters. They made it an enhanced theater experience. Uh, this is the first of its kind in the U.S. The screen is 20% larger than the current screens and features 3D technology. The digital projection system offers a better picture than HD, and uh, they, ha they had it in place in time for the new Alice in Wonderland film, which was due out at the beginning of March. And then there's a restaurant change in downtown Disney as well. Pollo Campero opens where McDonald's used to be in the, in the marketplace, and will feature chicken, salads, sandwiches, and wraps. This location will have sugar-free, gluten-free, low-sodium, and organic options for those with special diets. So look for that to open in downtown Disney in the marketplace side this fall. So these additional options, in addition to Little Miss Match, the Paradiso 37, the Trend D, and Design a T, 
Show Walt Disney World's support for the additional shopping and dining experiences that Disney stated were desired by guests as one of their explanations for why Pleasure Island closed. But what's interesting is they didn't put these, these new stores on the site where Pleasure Island stores were, where the shops and, and, and uh, clubs were on Pleasure Island. So since they didn't do that, it makes you wonder what they're going to do with the Pleasure Island site. There is a rumor floating around that possibly it could be reopened, uh, maybe under slightly different theming, but uh, be reopened as a, a nightclub scene again. Or possibly the buildings could be torn down and reused as something else. I don't think anyone's clear on how they're going to use that property right now. But, you know, there's another good idea for a podcast to talk about what was Pleasure Island and what was the backstory and how did that all fit together. I spent many a night there, so I have to uh, tell you some stories sometime. And then finally, there's the Fantasyland expansion that's happening at the Magic Kingdom. Well, you know, Fantasyland was kind of how Walt Disney got the whole idea of Disneyland started. When he started the concept of thinking about taking his two girls somewhere, what caught his attention was the idea of a carousel. You know, the horses going up and down and going around in a, in a circle. And that's why the carousel is featured so prominently at all of the Disney theme parks right behind the castle. Because the carousel was always a, an important part of what Walt Disney viewed as part of his view of a fun place to go. So, for the first time in the history of the Magic Kingdom, there's going to be a major expansion and I think this is pretty exciting. I think they've, they've took on an ambitious plan here of creating something much greater for the Magic Kingdom than they've ever had in the past and really doing something about Fantasyland and making it more interesting and exciting. Not that there's anything wrong with the way it is, but it has a certain datedness to it based on the fact that many of the rides and attractions and shows are based around things that were original concepts when the park opened. There's been many animated movies that have come out since then. There's been many theme things that have happened since then. 20,000 Leagues closed and you just used it for a, um, for a little playground for Pooh, that spot right in front of it. The, rest of the, uh, the west, rest of the water ride is still there. It's just emptied out, but it's still behind there. So you've got a lot of space. And you put the aerial meet and greet right next to it. Something else that happened over time was this whole idea of meet and greets. Back when Walt Disney started, the idea of having character interaction and meeting and greeting and taking pictures and signing autographs really wasn't something that he was considering. It, it was not about the characters and doing things. He had them in the parades and he had different things happening, but it wasn't about the experience of you know, dining with Mickey or getting Mickey's autograph or anything. So over time, as the Disney company developed up different ideas, they came up with ways to have character interactions. And because you have some of these characters that have faces, like Cinderella, Ariel, and the rest of the princesses, they have an ability to interact with guests on a whole other level than many of the other characters can. So that makes it, them just a little bit more compelling in some ways. So as you look at you know, the characters that are there and what they can do, I think the fact that they wanted to put more character interactions I think becomes important. So they put in a meet and greet with some of the princesses back in Mickey's Toontown. Now, Mickey's Toontown, what's, what's gonna happen there? I think it, that's anybody's guess because the expansion would go back over where 20,000 Leagues was, go further back and go into Mickey's Toontown. And the question is, what do they do with it? Well, they've talked about probably leaving Mickey and Minnie's country houses intact, though they might actually move them to another location. They've talked about leaving Goofy's Barnstorber intact, but maybe giving it a different theme, or possibly just moving them all together. So there's a question uh, out there about what they're going to do with them. But what is clear is that the rest of Toontown is going to be closed off and uh, rethemed to be part of the Fantasyland expansion. And I actually think this is kind of a cool idea, you know, because now you're going to take advantage of all of the 
nice, nice things and the warm and fuzzies you get from some of these films. Uh, these were very well done animated films that won a lot of critical acclaim at the time they came out uh, that really, I think, set the bar kind of high for Disney. And it's only been exceeded by Pixar because Pixar could do more reality type things with the, uh, with the way they did some of their character animations. But you did notice that Disney went back to some more uh, hand-drawn characters with uh, The Princess and the Frog, which I think is kind of important and really shows the relevance of having uh, hand-drawn animation and how important that is to the Disney history. But anyway, I digress. The uh, Walt Disney World announced its plans for the major expansion of Fantasyland back in September of 2009, and it will entail the closing of Mickey's Toontown. The expansion will effectively double the size of Fantasyland by 2013. The first phase of this expansion involves the closing of Toontown so the areas can be built. In the first new area, there will be spots featuring Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and Belle. Also featured will be the Beast Castle, which will include a, a new restaurant that will be counter service during the day and table service by night. Another part of the first phase of the expansion will be the doubling of Dumbo and a new interactive three-ring circus tent that will effectively eliminate queues from this popular attraction. Now, complete aside, Dumbo is always kind of interesting to me because there's always a line there. The queue is always kind of long. And you wait in line, you, you ride the ride, and it's, you know, it's fun and the kids love it, but it takes so long to get on the attraction. And compare that with the Aladdin attraction where you really, the line can be just as long, but you don't wait as long. So I want to take a look at that one day and see what the difference is. I think I've mentioned this before, but I want to uh, go and see what's different about the two and uh, get a feel for it. In addition, you'll be able to journey under the sea with Ariel, the Little Mermaid, in her very own attraction, which will also be open to Disney's California Adventure. The first phase of the expansion should be concluded by in 2011. The second phase of expansion, which should be finished by 2013, will be the construction of Pixie Hollow featuring Tinkerbell and her fairy friends. And then on February 10th, we had an official press release that the groundbreaking started. This three-year construction project will result in the largest expansion in the Magic Kingdom history. For the first time, guests will be able to step into their favorite fair Disney fairy tales and have a more magical and immersive encounters with the Disney princesses. Each princess will have her own theme village within Fantasyland Forest. So you have the dreams come true with Cinderella. Guests can meet Cinderella face-to-face -face in her country chateau, share a dance, or train to be one of her royal knights. Ah, the Royal Knights, very important that we don't forget about the boys. Clearly, a lot of this expansion is geared toward girls. And you don't want to miss out on the boys and giving them something, too. So you can do the Royal Knights, and then, of course, we're going to get to it in a minute, but you've got the Beast uh, being an important part of the uh, whole thing with the Beast's castle. Next up is the birthday surprise for Sleeping Beauty. It's party time inside the Briar Rose Cottage, nestled in, ever, in this lush forest setting. The three good fairies give Aurora the Sweet Sixteen party she never received, and everyone's invited to join in the surprise celebration. An enchanted mirror will transport guests from Belle's father's cottage to Beast's castle for an enchanting storytelling performance during the Enchanted Tales with Belle. The new district will invite park goers to Be Our Guest Restaurant, one of the three enchanted dining rooms inside the Beast's castle. And just outside the castle in Belle's Village will be Gaston's Tavern, another themed eatery. Meanwhile, in the Under the Sea Journey of the Little Mermaid attraction, Ariel and her friends will entertain in a ride-through adventure featuring favorite songs from the popular animated feature. The Big Top comes to Dumbo's Flying Circus with a magical flight high above the brand new circus grounds, twice the size of the classic attraction. Inside a stylized tent, guests enjoy a midway games and other fun-filled experiences. 
Doesn't this sound fun? I mean, it just sounds like it's going to be a really good time. And, you know, a couple of new restaurants and dining experiences, more interactions with some of these characters. I think it could be a really, really neat thing. And I, I really look forward to seeing it. I like the imagination and wonder of it all. And I think there's a lot of opportunity here. The uh, pictures look great. I mean, I think they've done a nice job with kind of thinking through the concepts and kind of figuring out what they want it to look like. So I think it's pretty exciting, and I think it's going to be really a, a neat thing to have in the way that it lays out. And, uh, you know, I encourage you to go and look at the pictures online. You can just Google it. There's plenty of pictures out there. But uh, I think the concept is really very cool, and uh, I look forward to seeing it. <laughs>